Amen. Please remain standing for the word. I'm about to read in just a moment from Romans chapter 11. I'd chosen Psalm 54 as the opening uh, psalm right before the sermon because I intended uh, this Lord's Day to, to continue a series through um, the psalms, and 54 was the next one. I thought it was still important for us to sing. I know many of you have uh, learned it already through, the, um, through our psalm sings. That's the first time we've sung it in the service, but I think the, the psalm is still poignant that particular psalm, uh, to the topic that I'll be speaking of this morning. I'll be reading now from Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 36, and this is the word of God. I say, I say then, have they stumbled, that is Israel, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if they're being cast away as the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches." And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say, then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith, do not be haughty but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again, for if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. And amen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we turn to your word for truth and for wisdom. We pray, pray that it would go into our hearts and change the way we live and think and believe. 
We turn to you to understand why we hate you as a people and hate one another so much and what you have done about that through your son. Please grant us understanding both of our own soul's state before you as well as how we are to view the world around us in light of your word. Do so by means of your spirit, even as your word is preached. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> well, as long as I remember, probably as long as you can remember, there's been trouble in the Middle East. And as long as history accords, it appears there's been trouble in that region forever. If you were in Sunday school this morning, you, you certainly saw, I don't know how many civil wars we went over in those few decades. Um, it, there's trouble always in the Middle East. And with the attack by Hamas in October, here we are again. What are we to make of this? What are we to make of this as Christians? How are we to understand um, what's going on? The geopolitics, that is the, the, the division within the regions, who owns which pieces of property, and how that has been decided and, and changed over years and many peace treaties and, and many agreements over, uh, in our lifetime, um, but over centuries, um, and the long-standing battle that has gone on is complex and beyond the scope of this sermon, except, except I do want to say that time and again, attempts to simply place landmark stones or put up fences between neighbors has failed at every turn. To just come up with another peace treaty, another peace agreement, doesn't, when will we realize that doesn't work, that doesn't solve anything. It simply puts a rest for a moment to, to the, the current strife. Something much deeper is in the works. Something much deeper is going on um, in that particular part of the world that represents what's going on in all of the world, though. And as Christians, as Christians, our loyalties, our loyalties are with King Jesus Christ in the eternal purposes of God. His son rules from heaven over all of the earth. And he is our king. He is the one we ultimately turn to in fealty, in loyalty, and love. And as Christians, we, our ultimate desire is the same as the Apostle Paul's. And his desire was for the salvation of the Gentiles and the Jews. Recall, Paul was a, an apostle. Uh, Paul was a, a Jew persecuting the Christians, the new Christians, till God met him on the road of, to Damascus and changed his life forever and the work of the gospel, as he became the minister, the apostle, he says, to the Gentiles. He even tells us in Galatians that after being uh, ministered to by God um, and, and uh, in that road to Damascus, and then after many years going up to Jerusalem and meeting with the apostles, he received the right hand of fellowship with them. And he says, I went up by revelation and communicated to them the, that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. He longed to see the Gentiles saved. But in Roman, the previous chapter in Romans, chapter 10, verse 1, in dealing with um, this idea of election and that not all Israel is Israel, and, and what about the promises of the covenant to, the, to, to Israel, he writes in chapter 10, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. And he's speaking about Israel in the flesh. He's talking about the ethnic people or the cultural people of Israel, his people. 
He wanted to see the Gentiles saved. He wanted to see Israel saved. He wanted all of them to come to Christ. And he wanted to see the end of enmity between them. He speaks about that, writes about that, and how it's going to happen in Ephesians chapter 2. We'll look at that in a little bit. So along with this going on, these recent events have, I'm sure you have seen, spawned all kinds of new last days hysteria and an incorrect interpretation of God's plan for Israel. I don't know how many times this, this has happened, again, in my lifetime. Some, some crisis takes place in Israel, and once again, we've got date makers coming out and showing us how the movement of this and that and the other thing is, of course, aligned with the prophecies of Scripture. And don't you see how we are absolutely in the last days? This is the final generation. This has been going on for centuries. Really, it's been going on for centuries and super highlighted ever since in 1948, there was the establishment of the, of the nation state Israel. And so in our generations, this has really fomented quite a bit more of this kind of what I believe to be really hysteria and, and not healthy for the church. Not healthy for the church in thinking that, well, this, these are just the last days and so um, we don't need to think long-term anymore. We don't need to make long-term plans anymore. We're all going to be raptured in just a few days. So that we just, it, and it changes the way you then begin to think about the kingdom of heaven and the work of God and the earth. I, I recall Martin Luther being asked one time, what would you do if you, knew that, if you knew that the Lord Jesus was returning next week? And he said something to the effect of, I would go and plant a tree. Was, why, why are you going to plant a tree? <laughs> he says, because, uh, because our duties here, our duties here are to be working for the progression of, of the kingdom of God on earth. That's why God has us here. That's what he has called the Christian church to do, to be expanding out the kingdom of God to all the world. Until he comes, until, until he comes again. And we're told in, in 1 Corinthians 15 that he's going to reign at the right hand of God. Jesus is going to reign at the right hand of God until all of his enemies, with the exception of death, has been put at his feet. Well, as I look around the world, again, I don't want to be a date maker, but all of his enemies have certainly not been put to his feet yet. Jesus has more reigning from the right hand of God to do. And so, as I said, this happens over and over again each time there's some new turn of events and players in the struggle over this land. And currently, th that struggle is between Hamas, a terrorist organization that controls the Gaza Strip and is committed to the total genocide, committed to the total genocide of all Jews and Israel, Israel being a pseudo-secular government, a, really a, a secular government for the most part, filled with much of the progressive muck and political corruption to be found in our country. The, the conflict, um, as, as far as nations are concerned, is between unbelieving Israel and unbelieving Palestine. In, in countries that have Christians living in their midst, uh, both Christi uh, Jewish Christians and Palestinian Christians. You don't have to believe that the current nation of Israel gets a pass on any sin or wrongdoing to generally at the same time in the midst of this crisis side with the Israelis in the most, this, this conflict. Even if you have major questions about how the modern Israeli state was established or the goals or the means of the current war. We ought to feel free to generally think that Israel has the right to defend themselves from blood, bloodthirsty terrorists who desire their complete annihilation men, women, and children, and therefore they may conduct just wars. 
And we may do so without it meaning that we're anti-Palestinian or anti-Semitic. As uh, Pastor Toby Sumter just recently wrote, he said, all reasonable God-fearing people should be anti-Hamas. But remember, there are other, other kinds of Palestinians. There's Palestinian Christians, Palestinian secularists, Palestinian liberal Muslims, and Hamas is an Islamic terrorist organization that routinely uses human shields for its atrocities. That's the situation that we find ourselves in. But this runs, this runs much further back than just the, the Muslim Jew problem, which is centuries old itself. While the word Palestine is a Hellenized version or brought on even by Rome, again, this was in the Sunday school this morning, you should have been there. It was really good. Palestine is the Hellenized version of the word Philistine. Of the word Philistine. But, but there's really little proof of any genetic connection between the Palestinians of our day with the ancient Philistines. They're just residing in that area that the Philistines were in, in Gaza. Uh, in that area, that's where you, we, we see the Philistines making their home during the time of the judges and then also during the rule of David, King David. The, the name now refers and it really refers to a region and the people who have populated it in recent centuries. And, and those people that have populated it in, in the most recent centuries have mostly been Arabs, and their ancestor goes back to Ishmael. So the current enmity in the Middle East is the ongoing enmity between Abraham's two sons. What are we, what are we to make of that then? Well, Ishmael and Isaac both... And the ancestors of Ishmael and Isaac both need to follow their father and his faith to the rightful Messiah King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus would say, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Jesus, speaking to the Jews, said, your father, and this is when he's, when he's telling them, you're, they're saying, We're, our father's Abraham, who are you? And, and he's, he says, your father's not Abraham. If your father was Abraham, you'd be doing the works of Abraham. Your father, that your, your father that you call your father Abraham, he rejoiced to see my day. And you want me put out. You need to have the faith that your father had. That's, that was the message to the Jews by Jesus. And it was the message, it's the message as well to the Gentiles, to the Arabs and to all the other Gentiles of the world. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. And, and there aren't any other options or ways of salvation. Now, in contrast to the last day's madness, there is a historic Protestant and optimistic view of what God intends through the rejection and then the return of Israel. Even the notes in the Genevan Bible, um, which was loved by the early Puritans on this passage, state with regard to the verses in, in the passage that I read, um, the notes to the Genevan Bible read this way. He sheweth that the time shall come that the whole nation of the Jews, though not everyone particularly, shall be joined to the church of Christ. This is what the early Puritans, the Protestants, many of which came and founded our country, um, believed that this, this passage was teaching. And that was the salvation of the nation of Israel that would come over a particular period of time that would bring forth an even greater evangelization and blessing to the rest of the world. The Puritans prayed regularly in their services of worship for the conversion of the Jews. And they believed that God would one day bring them to faith in Jesus as their Messiah. 
holding that kind of view as a Christian, you can't be anti-Semitic either. There's been all kinds of uh, all kinds of, uh, of scuttling back and forth between the views of Christians with regard to the Jews. And I think this passage helps to settle what we're to understand and believe about what is our attitude to be towards, towards the Jews and the Jewish nation. Paul, writing to the church at Rome, is explaining how the apostasy of most of the Jews was actually a blessing to the Gentiles. So he's writing to Gentiles in Rome, and he's discussing, and he has a warning for Rome. It's an important warning for Rome in its day. Frankly, it's an important warning for the Roman church today, and it's it's an important warning to all of us as God's covenant people as well. And he's speaking to the church of Rome in this way. as, as They are saying, well, we've been let in, and we've been let in because as, as Israel has been cut off in their unbelief. And, and Paul is acknowledging that and then giving them a warning about that. The, the first thing he does in the first 10 verses of, of Romans chapter 11 is he, he, he puts aside this, the, the idea that all of Israel has been cut off. He says, no, you'll notice I'm a Jew. And all the apostles were Jew, and, and the very first converts were, were mostly Jewish, but there were just a remnant of a people that for the most part rejected, crucified Christ, um, blasphemed the work of Pentecost, and then persecuted the Christians for, um, for those first decades, long before the Roman church began, or the Romans um, began to persecute the, church, the, the Christians. So he's writing about this apostasy of most, but not all of the Jews, and how that was used by God as a blessing to the rest of the world. And how much more of a blessing then, then would come when he says something about the fullness of Israel coming to Christ as well. Listen to 11 through 15 again. So he says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not, but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. There's a, there's a jealousy to be provoked upon Israel because the Gentiles come to Christ. Now, it's not just that the Gentiles become believers. There's more to it than that. When, when, a, when, a, whole, when a whole bunch of people in a society become Christian, that society, that culture changes. It becomes glorious, prosperous, and blessed in many ways. We learn to love God and love one another. We learn to work with the earth and with the tools and with the gifts that God has given us and create glorious and blessed things like no other cultures can because they're right with God, the creator of all things. That's what happens when Christians gather together when, or when God saves a group of people as a, as a group, as a, as a covenant people. I'm not saying that that makes them perfect. God is always at work in the process of sanctification. There's always all kinds of apostasies, heresies, disciplines that take place. But in general, if you look at the world around you, you will notice that the, that the, that the nations that, are, that, have, that have enjoyed the most freedom, the most prosperity, the, the, the most um, advances in all kinds of aspects of life are cultures and societies that have been impacted first by the gospel. That, that's, that, that's just, if you look honestly at history, that's just what has happened. So Paul writes then, going on, Now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. 
If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For their being cast away is the reconciling of the world. What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Verse 12, look carefully at verse 12 for a second. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure, that is their diminution, their loss, their, their reduction, if their failure from being cut out of the covenant is contrasted, he says, to their future fullness, that, that is their abundance, that will be theirs That will be theirs when they are brought back in. He, he wants you to contrast. Notice that they have been cut out now for the most part. They've just been reduced to a small remnant now of those who are faithfully following their Messiah. He says, that brought about this great gift to the world. How much more their abundance? I, I want to say that because there's an interpretation of this passage that says fullness means and only can mean that when, when we reach the final number of Jews that have been, uh, that have been elected, and, 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 means, and means this means this has to happen only right before the Lord Jesus returns. But, there, but it doesn't have to be understood that way at all. It, it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's rather this contrast to this mass rejection of Jesus Christ to one day a mass and growing abundant um, acceptance of Jesus Christ as Lord. That's, that's the contrast he wants to pit, that, that he wants to point out. So the one thing already happened, and the other thing is going to happen. And when the, when the first thing brought blessing to the world, the salvation to the world, all the gospel goes out to all the nations because the Christians are rejected by, um, uh, by the Jews, and, and there, there ends up being this diaspora, this, this spreading out of Christians, because they have to leave Jerusalem. They have to, they have to flee from the, these areas, and they go and begin taking the gospel to all the rest of the world. He says, how much more but life from the dead? You're going to see a world come alive in Christ. Um, not, not pointing necessarily to resurrection of the dead. Again, this idea from dead to life is a, is, a, is a phrase Paul will use all the time to speak about an individual or person who was dead to God and now is alive to Christ in a new resurrection, um, a spiritual resurrection life. And so the church at Rome and, and among the Gentiles, he is saying, will see such an increase of blessing as they follow the Lord, magnifying the ministry of Paul, of which we are the fruit, that, that they will provoke the Jews to jealousy. When, when he says here, um, for, uh, verse 13, for I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my mis- ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh. Paul knew he was called to the Gentiles. But the other thing he knew was that as, as, as he saw success in the ministry of the Gentiles, all these churches being planted amongst all these Gentile peoples and Gentile uh, nations, he believed that would magnify his ministry in a particular way. It would magnify his ministry because it would lead to the conversion one day of his people. He was looking forward to the work of the, south, of, of the world being evangelized to bringing his people, the Jews, one day and finally to faith, to be brought back. And he begins to argue how, how this is going to take place. See, Israel was supposed to be this great blessed people that turned others to Yahweh. People were supposed to look. God was establishing Israel. And, and, he, and he said, if you'll follow me, if you'll follow me, if you'll believe in me, if, if, if you will walk according to my ways, nations will see you and they will, they, will, they will think you are amazing because you follow and are close to the Lord your God. Listen to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 
uh, 4, verses 6 and 7. This is the Lord speaking to Israel. says, therefore, be careful to observe my law. Be careful. For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, the nations, in the sight of the nations who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation, that is Israel, is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that is God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason we may call upon him. There's a witness that God promised to his covenant people if they walked faithfully according to his word that would provoke the jealousy of other unbelieving peoples. You walk faithfully as a people according to his word. You establish a way of life and other people, other people groups will say, we want to know your God. We want to know your ways. But Israel rejected God. Israel rejected his ways. Israel was idolatrous and unbelieving. And the pinnacle of that unbelief was the rejection of their God, Jesus Christ, their Messiah. And so, but the principle remains. And Paul says that this principle has now been flipped. The Gentiles are going to be the ones who established the Christian church, who spread it over the world, and the Jews one day will look to the Christian church and say, look at what you guys do. Look at what happens. We want to know your God. So the Lord turned this around because of the apostasy of Israel. Their apostasy was the storyline It was the storyline of God. It wasn't God's plan B. It was the storyline of God to bring the gospel to the nations. And this is what Paul now explains. This is what he lays out. The Jews, as a nation, were about to experience a great disaster. And Paul writes about this warning. He understood the teachings of Jesus in Matthew 24 and and other places that God had said, that Jesus had said, in this generation, this great nation with this glorious temple, and, this, and these glorious walls, they're all coming down. They're all coming down. And as he's writing to Rome, he, he, he probably knows it's going to be Rome that's going to do it. Because there's already all skirmishes between Rome and the Jews at this time. And so, and he says, so he says to Rome, he explains, he explains that they're coming down. The destruction is coming, Jesus warns in one generation. Paul is speaking of that in a variety of different places. And through that, the gospel would then go to the nations like never before. He then warns the Gentile church in Rome not to become haughty, he says, for they are wild branches grafted into the olive tree. And if they are wild branches, how much easier would it be for God to cut them out? And how much easier would it be for him to graft in the natural branches? That's that passage in, in, in verses 16 through 24. And if you, don't follow the, if you didn't follow the illustration... Paul's using this illustration. Let me try again. You can look back in the verses. Um, but because there's some very important things that come out of his illustration. He calls Israel, as the covenant people of God, this cultivated olive branch. No, Israel is called uh, an olive branch, an all ki- a, a tree, an olive tree in many places throughout Scripture. So Paul's just using Old Testament language. Think of Israel as an olive tree. Um, and it's, it's glorious, it's sturdy, it, its branches bring forth great fruit, and, and God has planted it in, in a place where it can be um, fertile and produce all kinds of great, uh, great fruit. But in unbelief, it, it doesn't. And because it doesn't, God finally is done with it, and he cuts and removes most of the branches. Have you ever watched um, um, someone prune, that really knows what they're doing, prune a bush like 
if you watch, I've spoken this before, my wife pruning a rose bush that has branches and they're going out all over and, and then she prunes it. And if you walk out, it's, it's just down to nothing. There, there, there's the stub, there's the root of the matter, but that's it. And, and, and Paul has that in mind. The branches were cut out. There's only this one little, one little branch coming out, this remnant of faithfulness. And then he says, now you Gentiles, you wild olive branches have nothing to do with this tree. You have nothing to do with this covenant. Uh, as he says in, in Ephesians, you are aliens and strangers to this. You have no place here. But God, in his mercy, through the preaching of the gospel, as Paul has been doing, takes wild olive branches, God is, and he grafts them in to the same tree. He grafts them into the same covenant. He grafts them into the same people group. So that Jew and Gentile are the, the remnant of, Jew, of the Jews and Gentiles are one now. They're all one by faith in Jesus Christ, in one Lord, in one God, in, and they become, in that sense, one people. And he grafts them in from this nation and that, that nation, this people group and that group, people group. And he's been doing so over centuries. And one of the things that he wants you to know, he wants to warn you, is, uh, he wants to warn Rome, is you need to be careful. Do not be haughty. For some reason, he knows that there may be some haughtiness um, in there. There, there was growing anti-Semitism going on in Rome. And he says, hey, be careful. Don't, don't, be, don't be full of pride that they got cut out and you got put in. No, no. You, you need to make sure you understand. If God can cut out the, the original branches to that, to that root, to that stump, how much easier would it be to cut you out? It, it is, I think, it is, um, and many people have made this comment, it is ironic, if you think about it, that Paul is writing to the church at Rome. The church at Rome, who today in our day, would claim that it is the one true church. It is the, chur it is the one true church that, that cannot, be, uh, cannot apostatize because it is the one true church. And Paul, writing all the way back in the first century, warns the church at Rome, do not be haughty. Because out of unbelief, you can be cut out. You can be cut out just as Israel was cut out. But Paul means to prove more than just logical possibilities here. He begins to declare prophetic certainties. Something very important is illustrated here. As I mentioned, there's not a separate covenant with Israel. Gentiles were grafted into that covenant, and Israel, except for the remnant, were cut out. And this means that we are to understand that the church is the renewed Israel. The church is Israel, the covenant people of God. They are the combination of believing Jews and Gentiles, following the faith of Abraham. The partial blindness of Israel, now this is, this is where he begins to lay out this prophecy. The partial blindness of Israel, except for the remnant, was, pre was predicted until the fullness of the Gentiles had been reached. Verse 25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. He speaks of a mystery as not something that um, uh, is not going to be revealed, but a mystery that, that is now being fully revealed in his preaching of the gospel. 
And that mystery is that the, that, that the, the Gentiles, the goyim, the dirty, unclean ones that the Jews thought of as, as separate from God, are being brought into the same covenant. But this covenant has died and, been, and, and risen again. It has died in Christ and been renewed in his resurrection. And in his resurrection, all the nations are being now drawn to it. This is, this is the promise of this gospel. And so he says, that, that's the mystery. The mystery is that, that the blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness, the abundance of the, of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. And so as he, as he explains this mystery, Paul expects the church in Rome not to be conceited. And then he turns and he takes, conflates verses from Isaiah 59 and 27, and you see them here quoted in verses 26 and 27, where he says, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Well, how is that going to be filled? How are their sins going to be taken away? How are the sins of Israel, unbelieving Israel, going to be taken away? The exact same way yours were. Through faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through God opening the eyes of the blind, opening the ears of the deaf. deaf. For taking men uh, and, and women who are in their nature rebellious against God, Jew and Gentile alike, and bringing by the word of God and the work of his spirit a brand new life, a brand new constitution, a brand new way of living and thinking into, into our very souls and spirits, turning us inside out, turning us or from the inside out into a new people, a new way of living, a new way of having hope in God for now, for, for the way we live today and for all eternity. That's, that's what he would do. That's the, the fullness that is being given as the gospel is preached. So, for the time being, the Jews are enemies of the gospel, he says, but still beloved for their father's sake. Verse 28, listen, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Why? Because they're persecuting the church. They're killing Christians. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Why? Because God made promises and oaths to a specific people. Deuteronomy chapter 7 God says, but because, or Moses says, because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In, in Deuteronomy 10, 15, the Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples as it is this day. He delighted in a particular way with a particular kind of electing love to Israel and no other nation. And he chose their descendants after them, you above peoples, as it is this day. These gifts are irrevocable. Verse 26. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. How can they be irrevocable? And now we have Israel under judgment. How, How can that be? Well, this is God's play. This is what God is doing. Paul is talking about a Jewish return to Christ that will be as public and as visible as the rejection of him was. Verse, um, again, verse, verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved. Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, 
Even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, Gentiles, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them, for now, all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. And this is what the Puritans were praying for. This is what they understood this passage to mean. They, meant this, they understood this passage to mean, I believe we need to recover this and understand this. That there is going to be a day where the, the, the fullness, the abundance of believing Israel will be as evident and public as the rejection of Jesus Christ was in that first century, in that first generation. There will come a day. And why? Because God is good to his word. Because God is good to his oath and his promises. Not because Israel's good. No, Israel's bad. Israel is fallen. Israel is as fallen as the Gentiles. That's what Romans 1, 2, and 3 is all about. Romans 1, all of all the Gentiles are bad. They, they hate God. They won't seek after him. Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter two now don't get prideful, you, you Jews. You're all bad. You're just as bad. In fact, you were given the law, and you still broke it. Chapter 3, we're all fallen. We're, we all fall short of the glory of God and justified only by one way, in one way, through Jesus Christ. All, Jew and Gentile alike. That's what he's been, that's what this gospel has been all about in the book of Romans. So, the Gentiles were once disobedient, <coughs> but were brought out of unbelief by the unbelief of the Jews. And in a twist of events, God will bring the Jews out of unbelief through the mercy that he showed the Gentiles. What's the mercy that he showed you? What's the mercy that he showed the Gentiles? It was the preaching of the gospel. It was the gospel going forth to people who were in darkness and saying, here's the light. It was the gospel going out to people who were lost in their sin, in their death, in their addictions, in their, in, in, in their destruction of themselves and others around them. And God saying, no, no more for that. I'm opening your eyes. I'm grabbing you just like I grabbed Saul and I'm bringing you to myself. You're, you're now mine. That's what God does. That's what he does in hard, wicked, dark hearts. It's called mercy. It's called mercy. It's not receiving what you deserve. Instead, it's grace. It's receiving what you never, ever could earn and never, ever deserved. And God's going to give that to Israel just as he has given it to the Gentiles, as we've watched over these centuries, the gospel going forth. God will bring the Jews then out of unbelief through the mercy that he showed to the Gentiles. So the plan of God was to place the Jews in unbelief for the time being in order to bring mercy to the whole world, Jews included. Understanding this, even just a little bit, is a mind-blowing experience and brings overwhelming praise to God for his sovereign goodness, which Paul records in Verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. It was right there in the old covenant prophecies. We didn't get it. Oh, the wisdom of God. Oh, his, the unbelievable story of his mercies. We don't see it. And here's maybe your first application. How many times do you not see the mercy of God? How, much, how often times do you not see the, the incredible wisdom and knowledge of God as he's working through time and space in history, like in our day, maybe like in your life? 
You, you read the Bible and you, 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 you sing the Psalms and, and then you go home and you think, I'm not sure it's for me. I don't, I don't see it. I, I don't believe it. And, and what you need to understand is, well, the problem's not with the word of God. Okay? If you're having a hard time believing the promises of God for you, if you're having a, time, having a hard time seeing the grace and mercy of God for you in your life, if you're having a time, hard time believing that actually, actually, all things are going to work for good for those who love him and are called according to purpose, the problem's not the word of God. And, in fact, the problem's not my imperfect preaching either. I'm off the hook. The problem's your heart. The problem's your heart. Ask God to open your eyes and show you the glories of the mystery of his wisdom and knowledge that he showed Paul. Because God is at work, alive and active by his Holy Spirit, right now, all over the world. Right now, all over the world. He didn't leave. And that leads me to what I think we should take away. Several things that I think we should take away from this, from this wonderful passage. First of all, real gospel hope. God has always only had one covenant people, and it remains the same today. The New Testament church is the true Israel of God. Using an illustration, Paul explains how this happened. He explained there's a cutting off and there was a grafting in. Jews or Gentiles who forsake the Lord cannot lay claim to God's blessing and favor. If they are disobedient to his covenant, and covenant keeping is mostly, is primarily, first of all, promise believing. If they are disobedient to the covenant, they cannot lay claim to any favor or blessing of God. But through all of this, God intends at the same time to save the world. We have been given as the Christian church the command to disciple the nations. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth with no exceptions. So he said to his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of a scattering of people, a few here and a few there. No, he said, go and disciple the nations. I want Egypt, I want Ethiopia, I want China, I want Africa, I want Canada, I want the United States, I want Palestine, I want Israel. Go disciple the nations, all of them. What are you supposed to do? Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe everything, all the things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, with the exception of maybe the 21st century, which is not going so well. Wrong. Not true. It's not true. God gives what he commands. The Gentiles will be discipled. Our people will be discipled. And, then, and, and, uh, and Israel also will be saved. And this will only expand when Israel is saved the glorious work of redemption throughout the world. It will be amazing. The scriptures do not give us a doom and gloom picture of the future at all. The scriptures give us a clear and optimistic view of the work of the redemption of the world when taken overall. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you know the next verse? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He sent his son into the world that the world through him might be saved. He didn't come to give it the old college try. He didn't come to coog it. I'm not even going to go there. Too late. What about the enmity today? 
How will the age-old enmity between Palestine and Israel, between Muslim and Jew, between the two sons of Abraham, between black and white, between any other ethnic and national enmity, how is it going to ever be brought to an end? Christless means will only produce at best a ceasefire agreement or a peace treaty that will soon be broken. And history proves this right time and time and time again. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. He is our peace. Reject Christ, you reject peace. You reject peace with God, you reject peace with others. Reject Jesus Christ and you will not be at peace. That, that goes for individuals, it goes for nations. We must be reconciled to the Father before we can ever be reconciled with his kids. And that is why, and that is what the gospel has done in principle. So Paul writes about in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, let me just read this couple of verses for you. For he himself is our peace. That's where peace comes from. Who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. That's between the Jews and the Gentiles. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, the hatred. That is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who are near. He preached peace both to the Gentiles and to the Jews. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. You learn a lot there. When the gospel is preached, for instance, he says in verse 17 of that passage, he basically says Jesus is preaching. When the gospel is preached by his ordained authorities, we are to hear the word, we are to hear Jesus himself. He is speaking. He's speaking. He is that evangel. He is that gospel. And it is this means, the, the preaching of the gospel, and not some second cataclysmic event such as a rapture or another great tribulation. Great tribulation already happened. Just ask any Jews of the first century. Which, that, that's not what's going to bring it about. What's, what's going to bring it back is the preaching of the gospel. It will bring it forth as God blesses through his Holy Spirit. Now I want to final, just finally, I want to give you a strong admonition. Do you, you want to make it personal for a moment? I want to give you a strong admonition, and I want to give you, again, this sense of the glorious hope that is yours through Jesus Christ. Heed the warning of Romans 11, especially verse 22. Listen again. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering? I'm sorry, that's, that's chapter 9. Chapter 11. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you goodness if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. You're not saved by your covenant status. You are not saved by your pedigree. You're not saved by your good works. You're not saved by your creedal recitations. You're not saved by saying you believe in justification by faith. You're saved by Jesus. And the means of, of, of the, the connection there is a faith which God gives. You're, so you're saved by a living faith given to you by God himself, a faith in his promises, including that his son, Jesus, died for your sins, forgiving you of all your sins, and that he raised him from the dead for your resurrection life in him, your justification, your right standing and right life before God. If you are a covenant member, if you are a covenant member, it is all 
and only by the grace and goodness of God. Do not, you are warned by Paul here, do not presume nor despise his kindness and do not doubt, do not ever doubt his severity. Cling to Jesus, run to Jesus, abide in Christ and call on him to abide in you. But heed also the glorious hope in this passage. Rejections and apostasies are not evidence of the impotence of the gospel. Do you see rejections of Jesus Christ worldwide, culture-wide, nationwide, people-wide, all around us? Yeah. Do, do you see apostasies? People and people groups who once followed Christ who now are denying him and crying out to be just kind of secular world of some sort? Yes. This is not evidence of the impotence of the gospel. What happened when Jesus was rejected and crucified? Well, it produced the great atoning work of salvation. When Israel rejected the witness of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, it brought great destruction upon Jerusalem, and it sent the power of the gospel out to all the nations. This is what God does. This is the work. This is death and resurrection over and over again. And then, and then his work through another remnant. But it goes on and on, and it grows and grows, just like leaven in a lump. We ought to learn that rejections and apostasies are means by which God propels the gospel out in his perfect plan. It's all in his hands. And so with that, let's pray together, ask God's blessing upon this word to us, to our people, and to the nations of our world in our day. Oh, gracious Father, would you be so merciful to us in our day? Would you see fit to draw the Jews, lost in their rebellion against your Son, to faith in Jesus Christ? And would you continue the glorious discipling of nations, all nations, to the world, to Palestinians and to Jews, to all people groups, to our neighbors and to this city here and to the ends of the earth? Be glorified in the salvation of the world and use us, the church, empowered with the spirit of love and truth to reveal Jesus to the praise of your gracious glory. Oh, to be those messengers of truth, we need to be reformed and revived ourselves. Convict your church of her apostasies and compromises with her word and reestablish her. Reestablish us from and lead us from our own rebellion, which runs deep. Revive your people, Lord, for we ask it all in the powerful name of our King who rules at your right hand, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.